listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. This is take eight, Dan, take eight. So here we go. Hi everyone, my name is J.W. Cook. Our scripture reading for today is Romans 2, verses 17 to 29. I will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relation to God and know his will and determine what is best because you are instructed in the law, and if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then that teach others, will you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You that forbid adultery, do you commit adultery? You that abhor idols, do you rob temples? You that boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if those who are uncircumcised keep the requirements of the law, will not their uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will condemn you that have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. Such a person receives praise, not from others, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, JW. And uh, man, sorry it took eight takes. Gosh, uh, that sounds rough. Um, just a little sorry, though, because that also, that's, that's, that's kind of hilarious. I don't, I have no idea if, if, he wanted me to keep that part of the recording in, but I, I did because I'm a terrible person. Anyway, we are in the midst of a teaching series on the book of Romans. And as you know, if you've been following along with this series, we are in this section of Paul's letter early on where he's dropping the hammer on his audience. He, uh, Paul, is calling out the sinfulness and the hypocrisy in the Roman Christians, uh, the very people he's writing to. And that makes this part of the letter pretty intense and actually kind of tricky to navigate. Now, we've touched on this at length already, uh, but just to recap, Paul's audience, the, the Christian community in Rome, is made up of both Jewish and Gentile Christians. Uh, and they're not getting along too well at this point in history. Now, in, in chapter one of his letter, Paul takes aim at the Gentiles in his audience, the, the non-Jews, folks like us, and he calls them out for all the ways that, that they've gone astray, all the sins of the Gentile nations. And then here in chapter 2, Paul takes aim at his fellow Jewish Christians. And therein lies 
Probably one of the biggest problems that we as modern readers are gonna have with this particular text. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, Christianity was still a sect within Judaism. Paul himself was Jewish. Most Christians at this point in history were Jewish. And in fact, the single biggest theological debate of Paul's day was whether or not non-Jews like us could even be part of the church without first converting to Judaism. But fast forward 2,000 years to today, and Judaism and Christianity are two separate religions. You know, that, that ancient tie between our faiths has largely been severed, unfortunately, in my opinion. But it's at the point where, you know, when we're reading the book of Romans or any part of the Bible where Paul starts addressing the Jewish Christians, a lot of us stop listening. We see Paul talking to the Jews, talking about the law and circumcision, and our eyes just like glaze over. It's like we just automatically assume this part of the letter isn't for us. Because we're not Jewish, right? We don't, we don't have anything to do with the law. We understand that we're saved by grace, not through works. And so we might as well just skip this part of the letter and get to that good stuff about faith that's coming in chapter 3. Here's the thing, though. What Paul has to say to the Jewish Christians in his audience could not be more applicable to Christians today. But in order to see that, we have to understand how Jews in the first century understood the law. So let's do a quick history lesson. Let's rewind the clock about 13 or 14 centuries before the time of Paul, all the way back to Mount Sinai and Moses the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, Prince of Egypt. Hopefully you've seen at least one of the many film adaptations of the Moses story. And if not, I mean, you probably don't have much else going on right now. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Uh, so maybe that could be your next binge. But if we go all the way back to the Exodus story, when, when God's people, the Israelites, are slaves in Egypt... And then God sends a deliverer named Moses, who through a a series of, of plagues and miraculous acts of God, leads the Israelites out of slavery to the promised land. You know that story? Well, before they get to the promised land, the Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai, where they receive the law, including the Ten Commandments and the Torah, what would eventually become the first five books of our Bibles, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And the reason God gave them the law could not be more clear. The Israelites are meant to be a light to the nations, a channel of God's blessing and love to the rest of the world. That's like the shortest summary you're going to find of the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy right there. God wants the Israelites to reflect God's love to the rest of humanity. And so God gives them the law to help accomplish that. Following the law is supposed to empower the Jews to bless other people, to to radiate God's love. That's the purpose of the law. That's what it's about. The law is not given so that the Jews can follow it and try to earn salvation, to like go to heaven when they die. That's not the goal of the law. The law is given to Israel so that Israel can be a blessing to the nations. So like when Paul writes in Romans 2, verse 19, and if you are sure that you are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of children, and so on, 
This is what he's getting at. Paul's borrowing language from books like Exodus and Leviticus, where the Israelites receive the law at Mount Sinai and are commissioned to be a light to the nations, a light to those who are in darkness. There's just one problem. The Israelites keep screwing it up. If you read the Old Testament, it's basically like a history of God's people failing to actually follow God, turning to idols, withholding justice, basically all that stuff in Romans chapter 1 that the Jews of Paul's day would have accused the Gentiles of doing. That's what we see the Israelites, God's people doing throughout the Old Testament. And by Paul's day, especially in a, in a setting like these Roman churches where you have tensions between Jewish and Gentile Christians, the Jewish Christians saw the law as something that elevated them over their Gentile counterparts. The law shows that we're in, we're doing it right, we're circumcised, we follow the right diet, we observe all the right holy days, we're the insider, and those Gentile Christians, they're the outsiders. Which gets back into all that us versus them nonsense that we talked about last week. Paul takes aim in this passage, specifically at circumcision, this, this outward sign of the covenant, highlighting one of the chief ways <clears throat> that the law, which was originally given to equip God's people to bless other nations, had now become this mark of superiority that they believed elevated them over the other nations. And that perversion of the law leads to one of the most damning lines in the entire book of Romans. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. But of course, Paul's talking to Jewish Christians here, right? And so like this verse about God's name being blasphemed among the nations, that has nothing to do with us, right? Back in 2007... There was a book published called Unchristian, what a new generation really thinks about Christianity and why it matters. This book was written by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, and it's based on research by the Barna Group, an evangelical Christian research firm that has been studying religious trends in America since the early 1980s, you know, trying to understand not only how the religious landscape of our country is changing, but also why. This book was the outcome of years of research among millennials, people in my generation, to try and get a handle on what we think about, you know, Christians, Christianity, and the church in general. And the researchers' findings are pretty damning. By and large, millennials describe Christians as hypocritical, judgmental, anti-gay, out of touch, and too political, specifically too intertwined with conservative right-wing politics. This is how millennials think about the church and about Christians. And remember, these are the findings that are coming from an evangelical Christian polling firm. What's really alarming about this study, though, is that these attitudes about Christians were reflected equally in non-Christian millennials, millennials who weren't in church at all, and in those who grew up in the church. And we don't see these sort of attitudes reflected to the same extent in older generations. This is a new thing. This view of the church largely emerged in the last 40 years or so. 
Because remember, millennials aren't kids anymore. The oldest millennials turn 40 this year. And in the latest study from Barna entitled Reviving Evangelism, which came out just last year, 2019, the same researchers made some alarming but not all that surprising discoveries about faith trends and practices in America. They found, in keeping with the previous research, that millennials have fled the church in record numbers. They're voting with their feet. They're walking out the doors. And unlike previous generations, millennials aren't coming back to church once they settle down and have kids. In fact, church participation rates are now in decline across all generations, young and old alike. And we now have a whole new generation emerging, Generation Z. Uh, think about like your, your young adults today, college students, high school students, and younger, where for the first time in history, the majority of our young people are being raised with no faith background at all. And it's largely because their millennial and Gen X parents are so turned off by the church, they want nothing to do with faith at all. So what the data seems to be telling us is that the number one thing driving non-believers away from God is Christians. We like to point the finger at, you know, science and secularism, the media, taking prayer out of public schools. But the number one obstacle to effective evangelism in the 21st century are the culture wars waged by Christians in the 20th century. And again, this is coming from evangelical Christian researchers. We blew it, basically. We exalted ourselves over others. We became judgmental and hypocritical. We tried to use the power of government to enforce our own beliefs on society, to, to win America for Jesus. And God's name is now being blasphemed among the nations because of us. It's the exact same problem Paul is critiquing in the Jewish Christians of his day. But while their witness went astray with like the law and all these outward signs like circumcision, our witness has failed due to some uniquely American brand of cultural Christianity. Where being a Christian looks like voting a certain way, behaving a certain way, going to church, being steeped in church culture, and all these other external performative signs that are meant to signify that we're the insiders and everyone else is doing it wrong. So what do we do about this? What's the solution? What's, what's the alternative to a faith that is primarily about external signs of obediences? Uh, uh, boxes we check to make sure that we're in. What does the alternative to that sort of faith look like? Well, Paul gives us the answer right here at the end of our passage. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And real circumcision is a matter of the heart, 
It is spiritual and not literal, not external. Such a person receives praise, not from others, but from God. See, the problem here isn't the law. The problem isn't legalism. Paul is not dismissing the Torah or saying that it's wrong to be Jewish, which is how this passage has been read for centuries by a lot of Christians who have assumed that Paul's words here have nothing to do with us, right? The problem Paul is getting at is about Christians who are pointing to all these external, visible parts of the law, the the obvious stuff that differentiates them from other people, while at the same time failing to adhere to the core of what the law actually teaches. Doing justice, practicing mercy, radiating God's love to a world trapped in darkness. If we want to right the ship, if we want to be a different kind of Christian, if we want to redeem God's name among the nations, we need to take up our crosses and follow Jesus into the world. That looks like practicing justice and mercy, advocating for the least of these, calling out oppressive systems of of power and and violence, uh, renouncing that kind of stuff, loving our enemies, Basically, all the things Jesus was always going on and on about, right? Because the world is not expecting that. When the world looks at the church, they are expecting to see hypocrisy and judgmentalism. They're expecting to see hate rather than love. And again, that's on us. We can't blame the media or anybody else for this. It's the direct result of our failed witness in the world. But man, if the world looks at us and sees love, if they see that people come to a church like ours and they find true welcome and inclusion and wholeness, if they see that we are in the business of of loving our neighbors and serving those in need, if they see the joy of the Lord reflected in our lives and the, the love of God beaming from our church into the community, the world is going to take notice of that because they're not expecting that. They're going to want to know where that comes from. They're going to want to get connected to the God who is the source of that. That's what it looks like to be a light to the nations and a guide to the blind. That's what it's all about. That's what it's always been about. On our church sign right now, we have this message displayed, and it's been up for most of the week. God isn't calling us to go to church. God's calling us to be the church. Now, that's a message that's true all the time, if you ask me, Uh, but, but that is an especially important message right now in this time of pandemic. Because there are Christians right now who are protesting the lockdown, demanding their right to assemble in the midst of a public health crisis. Last week, I saw a picture uh, from a protest in my home state of Pennsylvania where one person had a sign that read, Reopen the Churches, and they were standing right next to another person with a sign that read, Selfish and Proud. Now, I don't care what your politics are. I don't care who you voted for in the last election. I don't care what political party you affiliate with. 
that could not be less relevant to me. And the question of like how different states and counties are going to reopen from this shutdown, that's going to be, uh, that's, that's a complex question. And the answer is going to vary region by region. My personal opinion is that we should reopen as soon as possible while protecting as many lives as possible. I like to think that makes me a moderate. But there are Christians out there who are trying to turn this into the next culture war. Trying to turn a public health crisis into an opportunity to draw lines in the sand, uh, wage a political battle. And the world is watching. The world is seeing those signs. If we fall for this, if we get sucked into this demented vortex in our culture that tries to politicize everything, we will lose. And I'm not talking about an election. I'm talking about losing an entire generation to the gospel. Because we cared more about external signs, things like going to church, who you vote for. We cared more about that than we did about embodying God's love in the world. And I'm not saying that those Christians are the problem and we're doing it right. Please don't hear that. If that's your attitude, please drop it because that's the same us versus them garbage we talked about last week. That's just like the, the, the weird parallel universe, like liberal version of that crap. We are in the same boat as those Christians at the protests. Our fate and theirs is connected because the, the world does not see a distinction there. And if we try to elevate ourselves over them, we will lose. But if we are on fire for God, if we are committed to loving our neighbors, living lives that look like Jesus, if our hearts have been transformed by God's love, if we not only preach the gospel, but actually keep the gospel, live the gospel, embody the gospel, well, then there's no telling what could happen. But our efforts have to be focused on following God into the world, embodying God's love for our neighbors. And in a time like this, I think that looks like protecting the weak and the vulnerable, caring for the sick, providing food, money, and other resources to those who are out of work, praying for our elected leaders, even if you didn't vote for them, doing our part to curb the spread of this virus by you know, washing our hands, wearing a mask, maintaining social distance, and above all else, being a good and faithful witness of Christ to the world. That's what it's all about. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us to remember that the world is watching. The world is seeing us. The world is trying to discern where our true loyalty lies. And your scriptures teach us again and again that our loyalty is not to lie with a given political party or a nation not with Caesar, but with you. So help us, Lord. Help us to be a faithful witness. 
a witness that will drive people to you and to your son rather than driving them away. Don't allow your name to be blasphemed among the nations because of us. But instead, God, use us to build your kingdom and to embody your gospel to a world that desperately needs to hear it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.